Well, I invite you to turn with me in the Bible to the book of 1 Samuel, Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 30. That's where we're going to start out. Now, I've titled the message this morning, David, Generous to the Core. And I titled it that way for a couple of reasons. First of all, David was indeed generous to the core of his heart. We're going to see that clearly this morning. But also, also because I believe generosity is one of the core values here at Quail. One of our core values, I believe, is to see God's generosity manifested in and through our lives and in and through this church body. And it's been remarkable uh, to be uh, a part of that and to see that, to witness that kind of generosity time and time again here at Quail. I chose to, to speak about generosity this morning also because I believe it can be kind of a counter to COVID. It can be kind of a, an antidote to COVID. I've talked to a, a lot of people during COVID who expressed that there seems to be a, a tendency to pull in and to protect ourselves, to go into survival mode. And my wife, Sue, has been pretty isolated during these months. And she told me just the other day, one thing that helps her keep a, a healthy perspective and mindset is to give and to share with others. And she said, that gives me joy, but it keeps me connected with people. And so here's the, here's the key concept this morning. Here it is. A willing, generous heart grows, it expands, and produces an abundance of joy. You know, one of the most amazing moments in the development of an infant is when he or she utters that very first word. Now, parents wait for that moment with bated breath. They try real hard to make it happen, which they sometimes regret you know, later on. I know mothers and fathers who spend hours coaching their infant to make sure that the first word is mama or dada, depending on the gender of that parent. And that's, that's always seemed kind of silly to me. So I, I never made a big deal out of the fact that both our daughters said dada before they said mama. <laughs> I just made that up. But soon after they learn mama and dada, children learn the next word. And the next word is no. And right around that time, children pick up yet another word that they use a lot when someone else wants to play with one of their toys, when someone tries to wear some of their clothes when someone might want to taste some of their food. They say this word. It becomes a great big favorite word. And the word, of course, is mine. Mine. My toys, my stuff, my room, my food, mine. And some people go to their graves. That's still their favorite word. They may not, not say it out loud much, but it marks them. It's on their walls. It's on their checkbook. It's on their house. It's on their car. It's on their time. It is stamped on their life. Mine. And basically, basically, we all say one of two words to God. 
Either we say, yours, yours, God, everything I am, everything I have, everything I own, yours. Or, on the other hand, we say, God, mine. I give you nothing. I submit nothing. Well, today we're going to look at a champion in saying the word yours to God. There were many areas of life that David messed up royally, but he got this one right. He had a generous heart. David loved to give. He loved to share. And I think he gets an A+. In the generosity department. And we, we need his example today. And he developed one of the most generous hearts in all of Scripture, really. And I think he's a very important model for us to help us get clarity on the question what does a generous heart look like? What does that look like? And I think David has a lot to teach us. And there, there are so many stories of his generosity, I couldn't confine it to just one. And so this morning, I want to look at three facets of a generous heart, and I want to do that by looking at three stories, three uh, illustrations of David's excellence in giving. And so we're going to walk through several passages of Scripture at a brisk pace, not, not a leisurely walk. You excited about that? You know, ready to go? First Samuel chapter 30, verse 9. And I'll tell you what the first facet of a generous heart is. A generous heart focuses on the needs of other people more than on my own discontent. And this is a classic example of David doing just that. And I preached on uh, this passage years ago here at Quail. And you may recall uh, David has a little community of those who are in distress or in debt and discontented. And they establish a little refugee community called Ziklag. And while they were away from that Ziklag village raiding the Philistines, a group of Amalekites came and burned their village down and carried off all their wives and children and all their possessions. And it just about wiped them out. They were ready to stone David, their leader, when that happened. But David prayed. And God said, you ought to go after the Amalekites who have taken away your village. So here's what happens. His men are ready to stone David. They've come back from this long campaign against the Philistines. They were fatigued and demoralized by the loss of their homes and their families. But David rallies them. And look at verse 9. David and the 600 men with him came to the Bazor Ravine, where some stayed behind. For 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine. But David and the other 400 men continued in the pursuit. So what's going on is, David rallies the men, leads them on a forced march south. They pushed hard for about 15 miles, and they come to this ravine, really a dried-up creek bed, the Bazor Ravine. And about one-third of the men, 200, say, we can't go another step. We were already wiped out when we got home and found that the village plundered. And now after this march, we don't have it in us. We haven't got the strength. We haven't got the spirit. We're done. We're done in. 
And David says, okay, and he has them stay back with the supplies. Now remember these men. We're going to come back to them. And then in verse 11, I'll just summarize here, but in verse 11 and following, they stumble across an Egyptian out in the desert. He was exhausted and starving. Uh, He had been left there by his master to die. Uh, He had been in the desert for three days and three nights, no food, no water, would have been near death. He was too much trouble for his employer, so he couldn't expect much from these strangers. And of course, David and his men weren't just strangers. They were Israelites. They were Israelites. And who was it that had enslaved the Israelites for 400 years? It was the Egyptians. So they were enemies. And the best he could expect from a bunch of Israelites was to be left alone to die in peace. But more likely, he would be killed. But David, David has this generous spirit. He comes on an Egyptian dying in the desert, and David says, what's mine is yours. And he gives them some water. And gives him some toot-sweet pastries just you know, to revive his strength. And the man turns out to be a servant of one of the Amalekites who had wiped out the village of Ziklag and carried off all their possessions and families. And David says to this Egyptian that they've taken all of our families. Can you lead us to them? And of course, the man had been left there to die by the Amalekites and David had saved his life. So he's more than happy to do that. And we pick it up in verse 16. Verse 16. This Egyptian led David down, and there they were, the Amalekites, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. In verse 19, nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. Now, what I want you to notice in, the, in this uh, text is uh, a couple of things. Uh, it, it sounds like the end of the story, but it's not. You remember those 200 guys who stayed behind at the Bazaar Ravine? Well, look at verse 21. And then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Bazaar Ravine. They came out to meet David and the people with, with him. Now imagine their response as they see David coming back with their wives and their children and all their possessions. As David and his men approached, he greeted them, but all uh, the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers, that is among the 400, said, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, However, each man may take his wife and children and go. Now, these men, called troublemakers, say, it's not fair. We did the work. We put our lives on the line. These guys stayed behind. They're slackers. And if they get a share, we'll get less. 
So we're keeping the plunder to ourselves. And they look at the 200 men who were exhausted and had nothing left to give and stayed behind, and they see undeserving parasites who will eat into their profits. And no way, they say, mine. And that's kind of the way the world works. We live in a world that, that says the secret to security and fulfillment is, is more stuff. And giving to other people means I have less stuff. So look at, look at David. He responds to them. Verse, verse 23. David replied, No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and handed over to us the forces that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. David made this uh, a statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. Now, isn't that uh, tremendous what David uh, is doing here? He, he's saying to them, you know, we were all once you know, discontented, indebted fugitives, and now we have all this stuff, but we only have it because God was gracious and generous to us. So how can we not be gracious and generous to others? Now, here, here's the point. When David has a financial choice to make, he begins by thinking about how generous and gracious God has been to him. And then he asks, how can I be like that? How can I be like God? And I'll tell you, anytime you face a financial choice, if you start by thinking how gracious and generous God has been to you, it's hard to, to not want to be gracious and generous to others. That's what a generous heart does. But our world doesn't work that way. There was a Harvard economist, James Duesenberry, after the Second World War, uh, he wrote a classic discussion of what drives American financial behavior more than anything else. And he coined, he coined a phrase, I'm sure it's familiar to you, the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses. We must have what we see. If the Joneses have it, I've got to have it. And we kill ourselves to get it. We end up working at jobs we don't like to get money we don't need to buy things we can't use to impress people. We don't even know. And even then, it's not over. It's not over. I mean, what do you do when the Joneses refinance? Well, what you do is you don't play that game. You just declare the Joneses the winners. You win. You win the house game, you win the bank account, you win the investment game, you win the car game. You're the winner. And decide you'll stop comparing yourself with what other people have. You're just going to stop that. You're not going to acquire any more based on what the neighbors have or the co-workers have or what you see on TV. You begin to practice gratitude for what you have so you're motivated more and more by others' needs than by personal discontent that can never be satisfied once you start down that road. And so that, that's the first facet of a generous heart. And, and then there's a, a second story. If you would turn over to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 24. It's the last chapter of that book. And while you're turning, here's what we see. 
Here's the second facet of a generous heart that we see in this story. Generous hearts look for opportunities to give. Generous hearts are, are proactive and look for opportunities to give, not just acquire. So 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 18. There's been a, a plague in Israel, very destructive. And God stretches out His hand to stop the destruction, and Jerusalem is saved. And we pick it up in verse 18. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunau, the Jebusite. So David went up as the, Lord, as, as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Araunau looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Araunau said, Why has my lord, the king, come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Araunau said to David, let my lord and king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Araunau gives all this to the king. Araunau also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Araunau, no, no, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to Lord my God burnt offerings that, that cost me nothing. Isn't that tremendous? I will not sacrifice to Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Now on the surface, this doesn't seem to make much financial sense. Araunau is offering to, to give him what he needs, and God would end up with it all anyhow. So what difference does it make who pays for it? But David says, I know. I know God will end up with it either way, but it will not come from my heart to God in the same way if it costs me nothing. When I give of my possessions, I give a little part of myself, and my heart changes. It gets a little freer from the grip of stuff, a little more devoted to God. And I want that kind of heart. So I, I want to pay. I want to pay. I will not give to Lord my God that which costs me nothing. Now David, David is looking for opportunities to give to God. And this is so counterintuitive because the, the world is obsessed with looking for opportunities to acquire. You know, I'll throw out a challenge to you for this week. Uh, just notice how often television ads bombard you with extraordinary opportunities to acquire that which will satisfy your soul. That's the subtext. I, I uh, remember an ad for Crate and Barrel, you know, the furniture and household store. It's a picture of a, a beautiful sofa. What do you say? Sofa or, I don't know, beautiful uh, sofa, and the caption underneath it says, that's not tribal drums you're hearing, it's your heart. You know, oh, be still, my heart. If you want your heart to be still and content, you need to get this couch. There, there's another ad, I think it was for BMW, again, beautiful car in the picture, and, and here's the caption, you can't buy happiness 
but now you can lease it. <laughs> you know, you know, for a limited time, you can lease happiness. You know, we live in a world that's obsessed with opportunities to acquire. And yet the, the sign of a generous heart is that you, you begin to, to look for opportunities to give. You just start looking for them, and they're all over the place. And when you give, you set in motion a spiritual dynamic that can't be held back. Good things begin to happen. They happen to the one who receives the gift. They happen in the heart of the one who gives. And they happen to people who watch it. You can't give without setting in motion that kind of spiritual dynamic. That's why Jesus said, give, and it will be given back to you. And that has to be understood, not in a crude way. It's not some new method of you know, trying to get stuff from God. But it's at the core of the operational principles of the kingdom of heaven. It's at the core of who God is and what God does. He gives. And it's a divine act. It's a little miracle when somebody just gives. And generous hearts increasingly seek opportunities to give. And they're all around us. They're all around us. Maybe you could give a, a gift toward a, a new life program scholarship for a homeless woman and her children you know, being housed at the brand new facility at the Gospel Rescue Mission. Maybe there's a, a family you know that's struggling and just an anonymous gift certificate. Maybe it's working at the St. Mary's uh, dining room serving, serving meals to the hungry or sponsoring a child in a third world country through a compassion organization or something else you know that there are opportunities all around us to give and and when we do when we give something happens well generous hearts look for opportunities to give and then there's one more thing there's a, a third thing generous hearts increasingly experience joy in giving and generous hearts find themselves filled with gladness more and more and more as they give and that's one of the ways you can tell if you're developing a generous heart. You like it. You enjoy it. You're filled with, with joy when you give. Well, turn with me one more time. First Chronicles, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, first Chronicles 29, last story. David is leading the people and giving gifts for the building of the temple. He wants to build a house of worship for God and for the gathering of God's people, a place to symbolically represent God's presence in their midst. And David initially wanted to build it. And God said, no, no, David, you have too much violence and bloodshed on your hands. And so David decides if he's not going to build it, he's going to kick off the financial campaign to give to it. And he says, with all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God gold and silver and bronze and so on. And he says in verse 3, besides, besides all that, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures, not just from the state coffers, my personal treasures of gold and silver. And he goes through this long, extravagant list of giving. And it, it fills him with joy to be able to give like that. And then that gets contagious. At the end of verse 5, he says, Now, who among you is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? In other words, to give as I've set the example. And look at verse 6. 
This is one of the, the greatest pictures of the joy of giving and how it infects a community in all of Scripture. Verse 6, Then the leaders of families, the, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave, do you see that next word? Gave willingly. Now notice that word because it's going to pop up, up throughout the, this whole passage. And uh, then again, there's a list of what they gave. And we come to verse 9. The people rejoiced at the willing, willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. And then it goes on, and look at, look at verse 14. I want you to see this. David is now praying to God, leading in a prayer of joy at this giving. And notice his perspective on giving. Everything comes from your hand. It's amazing. Verse 14, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord, our God, as for this abundance that we have provided for building a temple, for your holy name. It comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things have I given willingly and with honest intent, and now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O Lord God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. And Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also, to have loyal hearts. Well, now I want you to notice uh, two things as we close. David and the people face a project on a scale they have never come close to before. Could have been overwhelming. But two things. Number one is David's perspective. David says, everything comes from you. What we give to you it came from your hand. All this abundance, it's only what you've given to us. And here, here's the phrase, David's perspective on material possessions in one phrase. Here it is. It's not my stuff. God, it's not my stuff. It's your stuff. And we have this illusion in our world, it's my stuff, mine. And nothing is really mine. It was all made by God. It comes from God. It belongs to God. It's going back to God. You just can play with it for a little while. And then somebody else gets to play with it for a while. It's not my stuff. And if you forget everything else this morning, I want you to remember this. And so we're all going to say it out loud together. All right? Just projecting. We want to say it with some gusto, we're going to say together, it's not my stuff. You ready? On the count of three, it's not my stuff. One, two, three. It's not my stuff. Well, that's a good start. I know we're all masked up and hard to project and all of that, but I want, I want you to say it just a little, little more passion, all right? We're going to practice here. On the count of three, one, two, three. Three, it's not my stuff. All right. And so when you get in your car 
and you head home at whatever time today, you pull into your garage and you're going to see that garage just, you know, piled up with all kinds of junk, all kinds of stuff. When you see that, you are going to say with enthusiasm, ready? It's not my stuff. And then when you walk into the house and you see with new eyes all the items in your house and you do an inventory of all those items, all that stuff in your house, you're going to say at that point, ready? It's not my stuff. And then tomorrow, you go into a store or whatever, and you're buying something. You take out your wallet or your purse, and you pull out that cash. At that moment, you're going to say, ready? It's not my stuff. And when the IRS calls to say they want to do an audit on your possessions, no, you're not going to say that. Don't, do not say that to them. <laughs> now, David's very clear on his perspective. It's not my stuff. You know, all this stuff that we get attached to, God, it's yours. You made it. It belongs to you. It's going back to you. It's not my stuff. And generous, generous hearts get a real clear perspective like that. And therefore, therefore, the second thing I want you to notice, they're able to give with a, a certain spirit, a willing spirit over and over and over in this passage. David gives willingly, and the people rejoice, and they give willingly. And God loves that. You know, Paul says, uh, when he writes to the church at Corinth, give what you have freely, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see, the paradox is we're afraid to give generously because we think having more stuff is the secret to happiness. We think that, that having a beautiful couch or, or having you know, a, a wonderful uh, car is going to, to be that uh, key and give us you know, happiness in our lives. But that's never a good long-term strategy. You never meet a really, really happy, joy-filled, greedy person. Uh, you never do. But the primary hallmark of this scene in First Chronicles is joy. And you think it was joyful for them. What, what must have that scene been like for God? What must have been going on in God's heart? I think about how happy it makes me when I see generosity in one of my children, as fallen as I am. And for God, who knows nothing but the joy of generous giving, what must it do to his heart when he sees his children get it? When he sees them give? You know, first David, and then the leaders see David giving, and they give. And then the people see the leaders giving, and they're filled with generosity, and they give. And they have a huge party. And, and, and here's part of why this is so moving to me. Because that was David who served God in his generation. And this, this is our day. It's our time. And here's the thought. What if... What if 1 Chronicles 29 came alive in our day just like it did in Jerusalem those thousands of years ago? Wouldn't that be something? And what if, what if this spirit of willing, free, contagious, joy-filled generosity moved as powerfully in the midst of you and me as it did the people back then? You know, it says in the text that, that David rejoiced greatly. It's a poignant verse, verse 17. David says, and now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. And remember, David had this dream of building a, a temple for God, and God said no. 
And David could have just you know, slinked away and withdrawn from the project and gone off and sulked. But he gives and he gives and he gives and he rejoices when other people give to the project that he will never see. He'll never see the temple. And here's part of what I think was behind his joy. Because David was an older man here. And he's about ready to turn over the kingdom, to turn over the throne to Solomon. And, and he's going to die soon. And I think what's happening inside of him as he sees this spirit of generosity, he's saying, it's not in vain. All that I've done, they get it. And the work of God is going to go on. And the people of God are going to go on beyond my generation. And church, let's make it our goal to grow a body that is stronger for the next generation than it is right now and stronger for the one after that than it is for the next one. That's something I can give my life to. That's something I can give my resources to. I want to be part of a church that, that's stronger for our children than it is for us and stronger for their children than it is for them and stronger yet for, for the, the, the next generation that I will never know, that I will never see. And I think, what if we gave? What if we gave with such heart that we created a, a spirit of generosity that becomes a legacy for our sons and daughters and their sons and daughters and generations that come after us that we will never see? So that in a world where for centuries upon centuries, humans have grown up saying, mine. There's a, a, a community of Christ followers in Stockton that, that gets raised up who have learned to say to God and the people that God loves so much, yours, yours. And may it be so among us. And may it be so here. And may that core value of, of generosity continue to, to, to motivate us to hold with open hands all that God's given to us, to, to invest all the opportunities before us that, that God has given us to invest in His kingdom. And we're going to, to close uh, with a, a hymn. It's a little newer version of the hymn, but I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And it express, expresses what's at the core of all of this, really. And it's at the core is surrender. And so we're going to sing that song, I surrender all. That's, that's where it all has to begin. God, you gave it all to me. And I surrender it back to you. I surrender all that I am, all that I have. Lord God, take me. Fill me. Use me. I am wholly and fully surrendered to you. Let's sing together. Would you stand? Amen. So the rendition that we're going to do, it adds an extra chorus, which ties in perfectly with what Pastor Randy was saying. The chorus says, all I am, all I have, I give it back to you. Every breath, every step, oh, I surrender all. So you sing with us as Jenna starts out the verse.
bow with me. Let's just quiet ourselves for a moment. Come before God. and Maybe there's something you want to say to him this morning. Just have an honest honest conversation. But Lord God, we thank you. Thank you for all that we have. Thank you for our, our identity in Jesus. Thank you for all the the riches and the blessings. It says in the Gospel of John, you came into this world full of grace to heap blessing upon blessing upon us. To heap blessing upon blessing upon us. And we stand amazed at that heap of blessing in each of our lives. We say thank you. 
And Lord God, we do surrender once again to you, the God who is full of grace and full of generosity. We surrender. We surrender to you. And we don't want to have tight, balled up fists around what, what we have, what we possess. Lord, pray that you would just, where we have those tight fists, that you would just open, open our hands. Open our hands that we can receive freely from you and we can be vessels of freely giving what you have given to us in the first place. And show us, make us sensitive, Lord. There are so many opportunities around us. Show us those opportunities that you want us to, to act on. Those, those ways, Lord, that even this week that you're calling us uh, to give. And we, we have hearts full of joy even thinking about that. So thank you. Thank you for the abundance of joy that we have. And we just can only imagine the, the joy and delight it gives your heart when we follow your example, when we follow the example of, of David and we give. May you be honored and glorified as we do. And may people be amazed at the generosity they see. May, may they know there's something different about us that stands out from the world. We love you. And we, we pray these things for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you.